If you have a copy of God's Word, they're available to you. I invite you to look in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll continue our series of messages in 1 Peter. Faithful living in fearful times. 1 Peter, 3rd chapter. We look today at verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of our God. Now, Father, by your Spirit, as you have promised, may this word bear fruit in the lives of those present. May it bring conviction where needed, comfort. O oh Lord, meet with us as you have spoken. For we pray it in Christ's name. Now, I would say first to those this morning that do not know Jesus, and I know there are some here in that state. You have heard things, you have heard prayers, you've heard songs, you have participated possibly, or you've been an observer. And some of it may have puzzled you. That's okay. Some of this stuff is puzzling until you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what I will say to you. Occasionally folks say, well, you all don't have an invitation hymn at the end of the service. You're right. Invitation hymns and things like that didn't occur in the church till about 150 years ago, 170 years ago, and I guess nobody came to Jesus before that. Absolutely impossible for anybody to get saved until that happened. We know better than that. I don't believe in an invitation hymn. I believe in the ongoing invitation. The Lord says, come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So, my friend, I say to you, even at the beginning of the sermon, the Lord has called you. You're convicted of your sins. Repent now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come tell us what the Lord has done in your life. And we'll help you be discipled to follow him. What Peter tells us today is about suffering and persecution. He just can't seem to let it go. And that ought to give us pause whenever we hear others who only talk about the upside, the good things of the Christian life. There are good things. 
There is a glorious peace granted to those who are Christ's. There is the comfort of knowing that God receives you, not because you're good, but because Jesus was. There is glory in knowing your sins are paid for, not by you, but by somebody else, that same Jesus. But there's another side to this. Peter uses the last part of this chapter seeking to fill us with encouragement against persecution and to give motives for holiness in our lives. He speaks of not fearing if persecuted, of being ready to give a hopeful defense and of being meek and calm. And the question is, how is that possible? How is it that our spiritual ancestors often faced martyrdom calmly? Some of them being burned alive sang in the flames. Some like Stephen with a, a, a face beatific like an angel while being stoned to death prayed for his murderers and gives up his life. The author of Hebrews says it this way, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. How's that possible? How do you face the loss of everything you own? How do you face death? How do you face torture? How do you face the hard side of Christian living? I believe there's a central phrase in the text we look at this morning. It is in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is a command to Christians. It's not a piece of ammunition for those who would say, well, you can have Christ as Savior and later take Him as Lord. That's, there's no bifurcated spirituality here. There's not two levels. There are those who have Jesus as Savior and others who have Jesus as Lord. That's not what Peter's driving at at all. In fact, the admonition here is not so much about personal holiness, nor even about Christ's holiness. Rather, it is about honoring Christ. That is to so love and admire Him that He is controlling your attitudes and your actions. Literally, the text says, sanctify, make holy Christ the Lord in your heart. Now, you and I both know we don't have the capacity to make the Holy Son of God holier in a moral sense. That is an impossibility. Nor is it saying that if we don't do this, He is not holy and set apart. This is about our experience 
and our direction. We are called to set him apart in our hearts, exalt him as the most important. It's, it's like an old hymn. 1864, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign, my gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Christians are called to have such a Christ-centered, Christ-intoxicated life that this is the motivation and the comfort. So how do you go about honoring Christ as holy? How do you go about setting Christ apart in your heart as holy? The old commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, we sanctify the Lord in our hearts when we with sincerity and fervency adore Him. Well, I like that. With sincerity and fervency adore Him. When our thoughts of Him are awful and reverend, when we rely upon His power, trust to His faithfulness, submit to His wisdom, imitate His holiness. Give him the glory due his most illustrious perfections. Breaks my heart. Nobody talks like that anymore. I'd, I'd like to learn to, but people already look at me like I'm a little peculiar. See, folks, it is very easy in hostile settings for your fear to control you. You do understand, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are being played in some ways. Now let me be careful how I say this. I don't know about you, but I find the news, for the most part, tiresome, exhausting, wearisome, and extraordinarily depressing. Now, I have to remind myself, they have an obligation to tell us about all that's going on in the world, even the bad stuff. But I think what is so fascinating to me is virtually everything seems to be about bad stuff. Over half of it seems to be about bad stuff. And then we have this sudden sense of relief when we see on the news a good story. Ooh, something good. You're being played. I understand what I mean by that. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. First of all, people aren't that smart. I'm telling you, after six decades, I can tell you, they ain't that bright. The other thing is, they're wretched at keeping secrets. You know how to keep a secret? You don't tell anybody. In fact, better, you don't tell yourself. I do believe in one conspiracy. One alone. And that is the attempt of Satan to destroy the work of God. And however he gets that done, he will use whatever method he needs to see that done. But we hear these things, and we, we tremble a bit, right? 
I mean, I don't know about you, but that whole thing about war in Europe is frightening to me. Sobering. I'm past serving, but I have family that's not. I have friends that aren't. That's concerning. The pandemic doesn't so much bother me as much as it did. It was fearful in many ways, but looks like we're going to be okay. It was costly. I think it was a message from the Lord that we didn't hear and heed very well in this world. Honoring Christ, hear me, honoring Christ steadies your heart. Honoring Christ steadies your heart. It helps you deal with fear. He addresses it, I think, in these ways. First, honoring Christ quells or calms your fears. Verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter's not encouraging Christians to suppose their chances are better than average for escaping persecution. He's assuring them that under God's care and blessing, no evil can befall them. Now you wait, you say, well, now wait a minute, Doug. Verse 13, how, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Well, there's all sorts of people that were zealous to harm these Christians and they were doing good. Don't forget the prior verse. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you? You see the context? He's not saying bad things can't happen. It's a comparative. Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be? against us or the psalmist psalm 56 in god whose word i praise in god i trust i shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me that's a comparative if you set christ apart as holy your fears are calmed you know there's not a belief system in the world that can help you with this Consider the words from a declaration of self-esteem. Are you ready? Here's some of what the, the best the world can produce. I am me. Okay. In all the world, there's no one else exactly like me. Everything that comes out of me is authentically mine because I alone choose it. I own me, and therefore I can engineer me. I am me, and I am okay. What drivel. What silly, useless affirmation. Yes, you are you. Bravo. I own me. No, you don't. My friends, you're under the control of either Satan or the Lord. I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. You don't have to be possessed. You do the bidding of your Father, is what Jesus said. 
And what a burdensome way to live, looking up every morning and look in the mirror and say, you're okay, when you know better. Right? Now, some of you may be very deluded. That's a possibility. I'm just pointing out here, my friend. That is hollow, empty self-affirmation. The world systems cannot quell this fear. They say it's even possible for folks to have some interest in these great Christian realities, but they don't actually understand. They're curious, and they think it intriguing, but it never really grips them. I think about Herod. You remember Herod puts John in prison? And here's what Mark says about him. He knew he was a holy and righteous man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, that is when Herod heard John preach, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, isn't that an oddity? He arrests him, puts him in prison, puts him in prison for announcing that he's living immorally, and he'd have John come out and preach to him, and he was glad to hear him. May I affirm to you, my friends, there's no evidence whatsoever that Herod ever believed a word John said. I'm not sure how it would be to listen to John the Baptist preaching and say, good stuff. Oh, I'm not changing. Absolutely not. But it's, it's entertaining to hear him preach. I fear there are people like that in this world. Why is this helpful? How is it that honoring Christ quells our fears? Because the prospect, listen to Piper on this, the prospect of offending God should be a much more dreadful thing than the prospect of being persecuted by men. And my friend, that only happens if Christ be set apart as Lord in your heart. We read from the gospel accounts. Luke 12 says it this way, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Jesus will pray in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Hear this, my friends, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Suffering in this world is not the opposite of being blessed. Otherwise, the statement in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. That is idiocy unless you live with Christ set apart in your heart. You live for a reality greater than the immediacy of the moment and your suffering. Now keep in mind, of all people, Simon Peter understood failure and suffering, right? He denies Christ three times to avoid suffering. He was afraid. And so when I read this and First Peter, I'm reminded, Peter went from coward to courageous. How did he do that? What's the distinction between Peter in the latter chapters of the four Gospels and Peter in the book of Acts? The outpouring work of the Spirit, the sudden realization of what was going on, and he set Christ apart as holy in his own life and heart. 
and is willing to die rather than dishonor him. And I say this, folks, as some of us, we just seem absolutely determined to be fearful. Listen to this brother, another pastor here in the States. We're doomed, really has no place in the Christian life. But isn't that kind of how we behave at times? Huh, we're doomed. Right? We, we say that, we say it jokingly. Election doesn't go the way we want it to, we're doomed. Inflation reaches a certain level, we're doomed. Then you just pick, right? That actually has no place in the Christian life. It has no place for us. He says there's a reasonable expectation that those who see you're zealous for good works, that they're not going to respond to it with anything but gratitude. If you're a good person, if you're kind and servant-hearted and you show integrity and you're a good neighbor, basically people typically respond to that with a welcome. But he wants to avoid this defensive insularity that you, that you sit here and go, oh, they're all out to get me. Some of you people are paranoid. You live in fear. We see disaster and horror story after horror story, and it's easy, isn't it? It begins to feel that the world is this dreadful, dark place, and we have to circle the wagons and retreat from it and keep it at bay at all costs. We're doomed is an attitude that so easily creeps in on us. Set Christ apart as Lord in your heart, and my friend, your fears are quelled. Secondly, not only does it quell our fears, honoring Christ quickens your hope. There in the 15th verse, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now the word there, to make defense, defense is a Funny sounding Greek word, apologia. It's the word we get apology from. Now, when you and I think of apology, we think of offering an excuse. I'm sorry, here's why I did what I did. That's not what the word means. Literally, it means to defend. And Peter is calling us to be ready to give a defense. How do we give a defense? Because there is hope in us. How is there hope in us? Christ is set apart as holy to us, and we live in light of that hope. Now, I know there are folks out there who craft themselves and draft themselves as being apologists for the faith, and I appreciate what they do, but I also at times wonder, I, I have a hard time finding a scriptural office for apologists. And Peter here is talking about us making defense, but I think he's talking to us about making a defense, not in an academic setting, but rather making the defense in the midst of being persecuted. Because he's thinking, people are going to ask you, why are you doing this? Why is it that you won't offer some incense to the emperor? Why won't you put out a little sacrifice for this God over here and make peace with everybody else? Why are you such a difficult person? And that, my friend, is when you and I should be ready to give a defense. Jesus will say in John 21, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
We are called to be ready for this. Now, understand. Now, here's a place that Calvin, I think, gets it really right. It should be noted Peter's not commanding us to be prepared to solve any question about any matter that may be raised. Some of you are afraid you're going to get in this debate. I've always been curious how these things come about, you know, because, well, I don't know if I'm ready, and if I start witnessing, they're going to ask me hard questions that I can't answer, and here's my response to that. So what? They're not saved because you can answer every question. Because the bottom line is, many of their questions are nothing but a dodge for the fact that down deep they're frightened. You're actually right. Tell them about Jesus. If they've got a legitimate question, you can't answer it, go do some research and come back. But you don't have to be brilliant intellectually or skilled as a debater to defend the hope that's in you. Why do I have hope? Jesus died for sinners and I'm a sinner and I trust in him. He will not leave me in the grave. If this results in my death, that's okay because death doesn't win. Why doesn't death win? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Well, I don't believe any of that. That's fairy tales. You're the poor. I know it to be true. I also want to, on an, on an aside, say, yeah, and you'll believe the twittery that you see on magazine covers as you leave a checkout line, and you'll believe the latest gossip and foolishness that you hear through social media, but the idea that God would raise somebody from the dead seems beyond you. <clears throat> the apostolic gospel bears witness to these facts. Christ died He's raised from the dead, and he has done that for his people. You and I don't need to spend nearly as much time meditating on how to answer everybody else's questions as we do to convince our own hearts of the truth. That's where you start, isn't it, brother and sister? And I think part of it for Christians, sometimes we're afraid, somebody's going to ask the question that I can't answer is going to destroy my faith. Oh, my. Will you Relax. You don't have to live without hope. Convince your own heart. Do what's necessary to build up your own faith. Peter's view here is not the expert apologist. His view is the ordinary Christian. And the ordinary Christian, as he sets Christ apart, lives in a glorious, joyful hope. Mm. John Owen put it this way and this is part of our hope this is how we live there's more glory under the eye of God in the sighs, groans and mournings of poor souls filled with the love of Christ than in the thrones and diadems of all the monarchs of the earth do you Understand? Can I try that again? I know, sometimes you've got to interpret Owen. In the eyes of God, there is more glory in one of his children's weeping, suffering, struggling, faithfully clinging to Christ. There's more glory in that than there is in all the glory of all the kings and governments and majesties of this world. 
Luther said it this way, I'd rather fall with Christ than reign with Caesar. He wasn't saying Christ falling. He's saying, I would rather fall holding Christ, die holding Christ, than reign with Caesar. Honoring Christ, it not only quells your fears and quickens your hope, finally, it quiets your conscience. The end of that 15th verse, when he says, be ready to answer for a hope that's in you. Now look at the end of that verse. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Gentleness and respect. Far too often, I think this is considered unimportant. But you and I, in our defense of the faith, are to show gentleness and respect, and that leads to a good conscience. Now, what's a conscience? I think we observe today that there is a massive effort to stifle conscience, to sear it. Conscience is the person's inner awareness of the moral quality of his thoughts and actions. It's an inner awareness of the moral quality of thoughts and actions. And my friend, as a Christian, you can have a clear conscience. You can be at peace here. You can quiet your conscience as you give this answer in the face of tribulation, in the face of suffering and persecution. You set Christ apart, and that setting Christ apart makes you, like Him, gentleness, kindness, clear conscience. Our consciences need to be both informed and clear. If we honor Christ, our responses will be gentle, respectful, and our conscience clear. You see, the persecutor can't have a clear conscience. In fact, what does he say? When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. How are they put to shame? Well, if they're not put to shame in this life, and they don't repent before they die, they shall be put to shame in the next. Are you reminded of this, what the author of Hebrews said about those who suffered, of whom this world was not, what? Worthy. You understand, the world looks at us and goes, what? A bunch of weirdos? You believe in a book that's at least 2,000 years old and you believe in a personal God that actually communicates and that God lived in the flesh on earth and that our, we're so bad that the Son of God had to die on our behalf and that He came back from the dead and there's such a thing as a second coming. There's going to be an end to this world that's not caused by us, but it's what the, this Lord is going to do. You believe that God created you. You didn't happen by accident. What a bunch of weirdos! Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. I have set him apart as holy. What he says is true. 
and that quiets my conscience. You see, my friend, honoring Christ lets you witness without arrogance. It allows you to be gentle. It destroys the malice of those who speak against you, and it ensures that you're being persecuted for good and not evil. Now, when I say endure persecution, let me clarify. Enduring persecution is not the same thing as seeking persecution. There was one of the early church fathers who thought that he just had to go be martyred. And he did everything in his power to make it happen. And he finally did. He finally got arrested and he kind of had a preaching tour. As they took him from his home to a city where he was to be tried and ultimately martyred. And he would go along and preach to the believers as he went. And the Lord knows his heart. I have no idea. I just will tell you this. You're not supposed to go looking for it. But if it happens, you ought not be surprised by it. See, my friends, when we face this, our struggles are fear and hopelessness and guilt. And setting Christ apart as Lord quells those those fears, quickens that hope, lets it live, and quiets the conscience. So the question, believer, is this. Have you set apart, have you sanctified the Lord Christ in your heart? Do you reverence and fear Him? Listen to the final two verses of the hymn we started with. I'll love thee in life. I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Now, set him apart. Exalt him in your heart. May he dominate the landscape of your thinking, your affections, your hopes, your dreams. Him as Lord. 